Now, I believe that every Christian faces a daily struggle, a struggle to find motivation to do what God's Word commands us to do. Now, the struggle isn't that you desire to do what God wants you to do. Your desire isn't to do what is, what is pleasing uh, to God and, and you know is, is godly and right. That's, that's not where our struggle is. We have God's Spirit. We desire holiness. We desire godliness. We desire to do what He commands us to do. But the reality is there are many forces, both internal and external to us that compel us to do what's easy, to do what is more comfortable, to do what requires less of us, something that is less demanding, less challenging, and ultimately to do the things that are far less costly than to do the things that God requires of us to do. We've been looking at our series in Titus here and all of these exhortations where God's Word is summoning us to godliness, summoning us to do the good works uh, that are consistent with the sound doctrine that we have been taught. And that sound doctrine has a ripple effect in our lives that extends not only to uh, working in us, but then working out of us into our daily lives. There's an enormous struggle that we face as believers in our commitment to Christ and His call to godliness. Consider the young mother wrestling with what Scripture says about the commitment she's to have to her husband, to her family, and then what culture demands and culture says about where she is to derive her value and worth. Culture says it's not in the home, it's, it's in the workplace. It's elsewhere. Consider the businessman who's chosen a career that is characterized by frequent compromises that conflict with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he knows that if he bucks the system, if he challenges it, he's going to face difficulty, hardship. It will impact him financially. It will deny him advancements in this career that he has dedicated himself to. Consider the young person tempted to sexual promiscuity, wrestling with how taking a stance for purity and a stance for what is right and godly will maybe cause them ridicule by those closest to them. Maybe they're friends who really don't see anything wrong with it and may at times feel that they are missing out on something or being denied something that others are getting to enjoy. Consider the family so caught up with materialism and a desire for social acceptance that they can't grasp the impact that sinful and selfish tendency has on them, not just financially, but relationally and spiritually, as they choose these selfish pursuits over and above commitment to Christ and His church. Godliness has ripple effects. Sound doctrine has ripple effects. Godliness in all areas of life, brothers and sisters, will prove to be costly. Now, our text today is going to supply us with the necessary motivation and uh, commitment, if you will, to live lives that adorn the gospel of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, no matter the personal cost it may have to us. So 
So let's read God's Word. Let's hear what God's Word says. And let's be encouraged by what God's Word speaks to us today. Titus chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 14. Uh, rather, verse 11. And we're going to read through 15. Hear the words of the living God. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. These are the words of the Lord. Now, last week we looked at the ripple effect of sound doctrine. Paul instructs Titus to teach what accords with sound doctrine. That is what he was to do, to teach what is consistent with the gospel, the word of God, healthy teaching in contrast to what the false teachers were teaching, which was unsound, unhealthy doctrine. And Paul gives examples of what that looks like as he addresses, if you recall, particular groups in the church. He talks to men and women, old and young, to Titus himself as a minister of the gospel and the example he's supposed to be, and to bondservants. He gives examples of particular temptations they face and the character qualities that they are to display. But in the end of it, all of them are to be examples to one another of what godly lives, lives look like. The older to the younger, the older ladies to the younger ladies. We are all to be examples of godliness. And that's the essence of true discipleship. Where doctrine and duty, creed and conduct, belief and behavior are in alignment, are consistent. And, and when that happens, the Word of God's not reviled. When that happens, those who oppose the gospel and oppose us, they're not going to really have anything evil to say about us, at least not truthfully, and we'll get to adorn the gospel of our God. That's the godly life we're called to. And the picture presented there is this picture that the whole of the Christian life is the setting in which this gospel jewel is presented and displayed. That who we are and how we live as followers of Christ can either adorn and, and decorate the gospel or it can detract from and discredit the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. By our life and conduct, we either tarnish the gospel because we're not living godly lives or we cause it to shine with extra luster because we are living godly lives. Now, if you know anything about Paul's letter, he usually begins his letters by teaching the gospel, by teaching about all of the things that Jesus has done for us, all of the things that we have in Christ Jesus, all of what we are, our new identity in Christ Jesus. And after he does that, he says, now, in light of all of that, who we are and what Christ has done, here is how you must live. Here are the very things that you are supposed to do. But in this letter, he does the reverse, right? He starts with what we have to do to live a godly life. 
He starts with, here are all the examples of what that looks like for the older men and the older women and the, the younger men and the younger women and, 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 and those who are slaves. Here's what living out this gospel life looks like that adorns the good news. His big emphasis in this letter is how sound doctrine right, works its way out and has a ripple effect in the life of the believer and in their home and in the church and in their chosen vocation or maybe the one that they didn't choose, right? Why? Because godliness is the aim of the believer. That's the target. That's the bullseye. It's, it's one of the very things that Paul lists right in, right in his greeting. And he says, this is the aim of the apostolic ministry I've been called to, the godliness of God's elect. It's with an aim to the saving faith of, the God, godly, uh, of God's elect, but it's also the godliness of God's elect. It's their growth in godliness their conduct, their behavior that is consistent with the teaching of the gospel. Paul knew that the word of God working in the people of God would produce the holiness of God. And that those who possess genuine saving faith would have that faith authenticated by the godliness it would produce in their life. Right? That's how people are going to be able to determine what's true and what's false. How will they know if what the false teachers are teaching is true or not? Well, Paul says the proof is going to be in the pudding, isn't it? Because false teaching cannot produce godliness. False teaching does not even promote godliness. But sound doctrine, the true gospel, absolutely does promote and produce true godliness. Now, what follows those things that we looked at last week in verses 1 through 10, here in 11 through 14 is both the reason and the motivation for the conduct and character of God's people that is to be consistent with the sound doctrine that Titus is to teach God's people. Notice in verse 11, the word it starts with, the conjunction for. What does that immediately tell us? He's not introducing something new and standalone. He's telling us this is connected to the very thing he had just finished explaining and instructing, okay? It's connected to those instructions in verses 1 through 10. And then he closes this section in verse 15 by commanding Titus to uncompromisingly declare that this is the, con- the, the very content he is to exhort people with. And he's to rebuke people with. Teaching authoritatively these gospel truths. So what are those things that he's supposed to declare? and teach, and exhort, and rebuke with authoritatively. Well, ultimately it's this, that the grace of God has appeared, and that the glory of God will one day appear. Grace and glory. He refers to them as these two appearings, the appearing of grace and the future appearing of glory. Pay close attention to what Paul is saying by grace and glory here. These are not two abstract, immaterial concepts he's presenting here. These are not things out there. Listen to how he's presenting grace and glory because he's presenting grace and glory as a person. It's the person of Jesus Christ here. So the grace, the appearing of grace, grace has appeared. What's he talking about there? Well, he's talking about Christ's first appearing, right? His first coming, his first advent. 
His incarnation, His life, His death, His resurrection and ascension. All, this whole sequence of events there of Christ's first advent, He's referring to here as the appearing of grace. All of that as an act of the grace of God. And this future appearing of glory, what is that? That's His second advent, right? We refer to His second coming. He calls this the appearing of the glory of, the, of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We know that's, that his, that's his return at the, at the end of the age here. And, and all of those events surrounding his second advent here, his future coming, all of these are summed up as an act of glory. The grace of God, who is Jesus Christ, and the glory of God, which is Jesus Christ. Now, he uses a phrase here three times in this letter. He refers to him as God our Savior. And if you read it in this passage and in the original language, it's a little maybe cumbersome to understand because commentators are kind of mixed. Well, is he referring to two people? God our Savior as God the Father and then Jesus Christ? Or is he just referring to Jesus Christ alone as God our Savior? And it can be a little bit confusing. Is he referring to two people here? And, and, and notwithstanding, we understand the triune God is one God. Uh, but, but listen to the, the flow of the language here and the point he's trying to get across here. Uh, because when we look in, in verse three, uh, chapter 3, verse 4, he uses God our Savior again here. And, and there in 3, 4, let me just read it real quick so you have it in context. It says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. Now, he's talking about another appearance there, but here he's talking about a characteristic of God. His goodness and his loving kindness has appeared. And what is he referring to there? He's referring to the, the manifestation of those characteristics in the coming of Jesus Christ that brought us salvation. His goodness and loving kindness was made known, was manifested in the life and work of Jesus Christ. Right, so all of this that he's talking about here, he's referring to God our Savior, and we could say that is God our Father. In the New Testament, as often as that, time, that uh, title and that phrase is used, it's usually referring to God the Father. So what's he saying through all of this? Simply this, the grace of God the Father is Jesus Christ. And the glory of God the Father is Jesus Christ, right? It's Jesus Christ, right? And, and, and his first appearing revealed the grace of God in the Son, and his second appearing will reveal the glory of God in his Son. Grace, glory. These two bookend events, grace and glory, are revelations of the grace of God and the glory of God. It's a lot, lot of words, but it's conveying that one concept so you get it. Remember what this passage is meant to be. Rationale and a motivation for the godly life that we're supposed to live. So what's he magnifying here? Jesus. The grace revealed in Jesus and the future glory that will be revealed at the coming of Jesus. Two appearings, grace and glory. It's interesting that the New Testament favors the word appearing over how we normally referred to as his second coming or his first coming. The New Testament writers use the word appearing. Here's two instances. Colossians 3, 4. Paul writing, When Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. What's he referring to? His second advent. 
his return at the end of the age. He says, when he appears, Christ, who is your life, appears, you're also going to appear with him in glory. That revelation, that manifestation of Jesus at the end of the age will also result in our manifestation as the children of God. 1 Timothy 6.14, we already looked at this passage. Paul writes that Timothy is to keep, he charges him, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until, what? The appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Greek word for appearing in our text is one where we derive our word epiphany, right? That word epiphany is used here in the Greek, the transliteration of it. And it means to come into view, for something to become apparent that maybe was previously hidden. It it's now shows up, okay? And the, sen- the sense in this passage is something coming into view that was previously concealed. The words used a lot in secular Greek writing to speak of, like, you know, the, the break of dawn, right? That, that moment where the sun just begins to peek out over the horizon, that first light, right? Well, the sun was always there, wasn't it? It's just now coming into view. It's just now appearing, right? And, and here's why that word usage is more significant than using the word his second coming or his first coming, his first appearing, his second appearing. Why is that a preferred way to refer to it, especially when we're thinking of Christ's second advent in glory? Because Christ is not going to have glory at his second return. Christ doesn't all of a sudden have glory at his second appearing. No, Christ has glory now. Christ is reigning now. He's not going to reign then. He has always been, is now reigning. But what's going to happen? That's going to be fully and finally revealed and made manifest to everyone. Okay? He's reigning in glory now. His reign and glory right now are hidden. That's not evident and apparent to everyone, is it? We live in a world that doesn't operate as if Jesus Christ is reigning in in glory now, does it? Or even accepts it, or even understands it, or even sees it. But one day, that glory will not remain hidden. Right? One day, it will be revealed And everyone's going to see what you and I know now by faith. His appearing in glory will fully and finally reveal the present reality. The curtain is going to be pulled back to reveal what we know has always been true. He is the King of glory. He is reigning now. What does Scripture declare? That at that day, every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that He is Lord. Well, we know that now, don't we? As the people of God. But then, at His appearing, everyone's going to know that. Everyone's going to realize that truth. And that should fill you with hope. That should encourage you, saint of God. Because this is speaking about a future that is as real now as it's going to be then. Now, we don't always live that way. But right now, Paul's saying, think about his two appearings, his grace, his coming in grace, and his future coming in glory. And our glorious future is already a reality, and we are just waiting for it to come 
interview. But here's the fascinating thing he begins to tell us about this grace here. Okay? The grace that has appeared, right? That grace appeared visibly in Christ. What does that mean? Well, God's decree of salvation in eternity past, His determination to save some and show them saving grace has been revealed through the appearing of our Savior. What did Jesus Himself say? That He came to save. He came to bring salvation. Think about that in His coming. He was the Savior. He was the Messiah. That wasn't apparent to everyone, was it? The Jews, they were looking for the Messiah, but He didn't come as the Messiah they wanted. He already alluded that His coming would be in two stages. He had to be the suffering servant of Isaiah, the servant of the Lord. They wanted the triumphant, conquering Messiah. And Jesus reveals, well, that's going to come at the end of the age. But He came to bring salvation True and real salvation to his people. And it's interesting, he says that, and he writes here that that grace has appeared bringing salvation. Well, the grace is Jesus bringing salvation. But then he says for all people. Does that mean everyone? Every single individual person? No, right? No. We've, we've defined this all, right? It's important to define the all. Because when we think of all, we think of every single thing. But all here doesn't mean all in that capacity. It can't. Are all saved? It's not a trick question. Are all saved? No. We should be confident in this. Paul is not all of a sudden teaching universalism. Okay? No, no. Every single person is going to be saved. No. We've already looked at this uh, in our study in the pastorals here. All means all kinds of people. All different kinds of people. Okay? Paul wrote in 1.1 that the aim of his apostolic ministry is the saving faith of God's elect. Right? These are, this is God's chosen people. It cannot mean every single individual person without exception. That's not the gospel. Okay? God has a people he's rescued and saved. And that's what Jesus has come to accomplish and do, bringing salvation. But it's to all kinds of people. It's not one homogenous looking mass of people that make up the body of christ it's all kinds of people and he's already given us all kinds of people in the context of our text here male and female old and young bond servants right slaves and masters yeah all different kinds of people are, are going to be able to get in on the salvation that has come in the appearing of christ as the grace of god even slaves and masters Think about the encouragement this would have been to a slave, right? Some of them who are treated and considered to be dirt. The worst of the worst, the lowest station in life would be the person doing menial service. But a slave, even a slave, gets to get in on the grace of God shown in Jesus Christ. Even them. And then what motivation for a bondservant to live a godly life before their masters so that they could see the beauty and excellency and worth of Jesus Christ in a life that adorns the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they're going to say, I want in on that. And even masters could then get in on the good news. This is amazing what he's saying here in this passage. God saves all kinds of people. 
And we need to live in a way that commends the gospel to all kinds of people. This is motivation to a missionary life, isn't it? To a life that proclaims the good news. That's why Paul says that Titus must teach and declare these things. God's saving grace is the reason and motivation for a godly life and for godliness. So we need to live our lives in a way that the gospel shines with this extra luster. God's saving grace has appeared in the person and work of Christ. And when you do that, well, you need to be ready and expect that others are going to ask, what's that all about? You're a weird dude. You're a different woman. I mean, you're not like everyone else. Why do you have joy? Why do you have a smile on your face? And, and, and if they, especially if they know you're going through a hardship in life and you continue to be encouraging and filled with grace and kindness, exemplifying the, the, the godly character that we're supposed to, right? Well, that's an opportunity then for us to open our mouths with confidence to, to proclaim the good news. Why? Because we've been living a life consistent with the truth that we're about to proclaim. How freeing is that? Now, if you haven't been living a life consistent with the gospel and with sound doctrine, then, yeah, it gets hard, doesn't it? Many times, people don't even know you're a Christian if you're living that way. And if you are not living as a Christian, I prefer you don't even mention that you're a Christian. You don't want to discredit the gospel and tarnish the gospel. When your life, because you're motivated by the grace of God here, and you're living a life consistent with that, man, it becomes real easy then to begin to tell others about the grace of God. Now, you and I live in this in-between period, in between grace and glory, in between these two appearings. And that's what Paul writes here, is this present age, this present age that we're in. Paul sandwiches the behavior and conduct of those who've received the grace of God and those who are waiting on glory between these two appearings. Those two appearings is the bread, this present age, and the way we live this stuff out. Well, that, that's the meat of the sandwich here that he's pre- presenting to us here. It's the Christian life. It's lived between grace and glory. This verse 11 the grace that has appeared, well, that's, that's behind us, isn't it? That, that's already taken place. That's his first appearing. And then now we have verse 13. That's ahead of us. That's his future glory that's going to be made manifest and revealed, right? So, so grace behind us, glory ahead of us, and we're to live in light of both of those realities, These two realities then, in essence, become the engine and motivation and fuel of the Christian life. Think about a freight train, a long freight train. What's necessary there? You need the locomotive engine, and we always think of it as in the front, but those long freight trains also have a locomotive engine in the rear. One's pulling the train, and the other's in the back pushing the train forward. Grace and glory are the engine of the Christian life motivation and the source of what is necessary for us to live the godliness that we have been called to here and because godliness is the aim of the believer's life look what look what this grace does for us it trains us 
unto godliness, right? Grace the Savior becomes grace the teacher. Verse 12, training us. The grace that has appeared trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, in the now between grace and glory. The grace of God schools us in and for godliness. Now, we don't just need the grace of God to prepare us for future glory. It does do that, but that's not all we need it for. I, I think back in my early Christian days as a, as a, as a young Christian and, and um, the altar calls, right? What was the altar call usually about? Come and give your life over to Jesus or go to hell. Or you'll face judgment, right? It was like a fire insurance policy. We present grace in this way that it's, it's only about escaping the coming judgment, escaping the final judgment, escaping torment in hell. And let me tell you, I responded to a lot of those altar calls, right? No, nobody wants that. You probably did as well. You got your ticket punched a lot, right? Because you're like, I need that grace because I don't want that. It's a horrible thing to even think about. The reality of final judgment. And those who have not experienced the grace of our Lord, the saving faith that comes by grace, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that is the end, isn't it? That is the reality. But, and praise God for this, God's grace saves us, yes, from that judgment but it, it, to come, but it also shapes us for the life that we're supposed to live now. God's grace is for the now, this in-between period between that former grace, that past grace, and the future glory that we will have one day. The gospel is good news for the last day, and it's good news for today and every day until that day. We need that. And here he says that this grace that trains us brings us into conformity with the character of saving grace. That's Jesus, right? Reminded of Luke chapter 6. <clears throat> this is Jesus teaching his disciples in 640. A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Everyone, when he's fully trained, will be like his teacher. Isn't that what it means to be a disciple? It's to be a student. It's to sit and learn under the authority of a teacher. And Jesus says that the goal, the aim is to what? To be like the teacher. That's the essence of discipleship, to be like him. And it is the same grace that saves us that also teaches us to be like him. And Paul's going to tell us what it teaches us here. Here's what it teaches us. The first thing that it teaches us is how to, how to live a godly life. Grace trains us, he writes here, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Teaches us to say no, doesn't it? teaches us to say no to what is not consistent and contrary to a godly life, to godliness, to the kind of conduct that one who claims to be a follower of Christ and who has the Spirit of God should be living. Now, legalists love this one, right? Legalists, legalists love their list of no's, right? It's a long no, 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 no. If you come from the legalistic 
backgrounds and denominational distinctives, you know it's more about what you can't do than what you should be able to do. And they love this passage, and they say, well, this is good. And, and this is why they rail against many times the message of the lavish grace of God, because they think, well, you're just, going to be, you're just talking about having a license to sin, that a Christian can do whatever they want to do and act however they want to do, because God has already forgiven them of all their sins, so it doesn't matter how they live. Now, is that true? No, that's not true at all. Look, Paul is clear here. Grace isn't licensed to live licentiously because he says yeah you're to renounce you're to say no to ungodliness and fleshly carnal worldly impulses but here's what you're you're to say yes to here's what you're supposed to do and how you're supposed to live a self-controlled upright and godly life grace teaches us not only to say no but it also teaches us to say yes to control ourselves and our passions. In verse 3 of chapter 3, Paul writes that our former way of life before grace became our teacher was marked by foolishness, disobedience, being enslaved, being enslaved, captivated by our various passions and pleasures. But now the grace of God has appeared. What? Enabling us to have mastery over our carnal and fleshly impulses and desires. It gives us motivation and trains us to live uprightly before others. To live godly and right before our Lord. This is what grace teaches us here. This is why we need to understand grace. This is why we need to have the right gospel understanding of the grace of God. Because the grace of God doesn't compel us to live a sloppy life. It, it doesn't provoke us to just sit back and coast in our Christian walk and not care about what God's Word says that we should be, do, be doing in lives of godliness. It doesn't do that at all. The grace of God compels us to holiness. Compels us to holiness. Now, we understand the gospel and we don't put the cart before the horse, do we? Do we? It's not what we do that saves us, Right? No, no, we are not saved by works. We don't believe that. That's not the gospel. It's not what we do that saves us. We know it's what Christ has done for us, but we're not saved by works. But that does not mean that once we are saved by the grace of God, that then no works are expected of us. It does not mean that I can live an unholy, ungodly life without a care or concern to what God expects of us. No, grace will compel us to godliness and to holiness, right? Grace, uh, uh, when, we're saved unto, uh, when we're saved by grace, we're saved unto good works. These become the fruit of saving and transforming grace. That's what we do. If you've genuinely been saved, if you have genuine, authentic, saving faith, guess what? Your life is going to bear the fruit of that. It has to. Otherwise, there's reason to call that into question. Again, our confidence isn't in our works. It's not even in our good works. But we just know that if we are, have been saved by grace, that is the consequence of it in the life of the believer. God's grace results in living out God's requirements. The requirements don't save us, but once we are saved, we understand that those requirements are meant to keep us 
free from the danger that we once used to live in. Our life of ungodliness did not lead us to the Lord. Our life of giving in and being enslaved to our worldly and fleshly passions were detrimental to our life. And the deeper we grow in grace, the deeper we go into grace, the more we are motivated to greater heights of obedience. Why? Because we want to be like our Savior. We want to be conformed to Him. That becomes the desire of the disciple, to be like His teacher. And grace trains us, teaches us to be conformed to Christ. The more you drink of grace, the more you gaze at grace, the more you marvel at grace, the more you meditate on grace, you will be trained by grace to live a grace-fueled life saying no to ungodliness and yes to godliness. Do you want that? Do you desire that? That doesn't sound logical, but this is all a consequence of the appearing of the grace of God and how this grace trains us and teaches us. Grace trains us by giving us a true apprehension of the magnitude and repugnance of our sin. When we have that, we will want to say no to ungodliness and our carnal desires and our ungodly impulses. Grace trains us by giving us a true apprehension also of the magnitude and glory of our Savior. And when we have that, we will want to say yes to living a self-controlled, upright, and godly life in this present age. This is what grace does for us. At our city group on Friday night, we talked about the doctrine of the atonement. And when you begin to talk about what Christ has done, man, if you've been saved, what, is that, what does that do to you? you? You can't listen to that. You can't hear that. You can't study that without marveling at what, what, what has been done for you. And how you'd want to now desire to live for Him. That can only be our response. To live for Him and to love Him and to serve Him with our whole being. And this is why Paul puts this before us and says, look, this grace has appeared. Look at it. Look at it. And this is what it does for you. It trains you to be godly. That gaze of grace, that gaze at Christ. So it teaches us to be godly, but it also then, grace also teaches us to wait on glory. Grace teaches us to wait on glory by creating in us an expectancy of an appearing of the glory that stimulates faithfulness and perseverance in our day-to-day life and walk with the Lord. How else would we persevere in times of trials? How else will we persevere when it gets extremely costly to follow Jesus? When there's challenges and difficulty and pain and affliction and hardships in our Christian walk, how else will we remain steadfast if not the hope of the glory to come? That Christ is coming again. That there is going to be a future appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus. Christ, where His reign and glory will be fully and finally revealed. Where you and I will get to enter into all that has been promised for us. Everything that our salvation has promised us is awaiting us there. Paul calls this our blessed hope. 
Blessed hope. This is biblical hope he's talking about here. This is not wishful thinking. This is not something you and I have to be left wondering. Will that really be? Is there really a future glory? I mean, will I really get everything Jesus promised for me? Will I actually enter into my inheritance that has been laid up for me? That the, that the scripture talks about? Will I actually get a, a resurrected body like unto our Lord? Will I really be forever with Him in His presence? Well, you don't have to wish or think about it as a maybe. This is biblical hope. This means that this is assured. It is a certainty. It's just waiting to be made manifest. It's there. It's as real as this is real now. It's even realer, if that's a word I can use there, than what we're seeing right now with our physical eyes. John, writing in 1 John chapter 3, 2 through 4, Beloved, he writes, We are God's children now. When are you God's child? Now. Not in the future glory. You're that now. But he goes on to say here what? And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. What is he saying? There is a reality right now of what you are as a child of God. But what that fully looks like, we haven't seen that yet. It's already there. But at his appearing, like, boom, the scales will fall off of everyone's eyes. And what we are to be will be fully revealed. And, and, and John writes here, just like Paul is saying, look at that. Put your hope in that. It is assured, it is guaranteed that when he appears, we'll be transformed to be like him. And we will see him Right? With unveiled faces and eyes, we'll behold Him as He is. And if that's where your hope is, well, then you're going to live a godly life. If you live with that hope, if you have that hope, you'll purify yourself as He is pure. That's the motivation. That's glory. And that hope is fuel for a life of godliness and holiness. Grace, glory, what Christ has done for you and what's fully going to be made known. That's going to keep you walking after him and persevering. How do we live in this grind of the day-to-day -day life of this present age between grace and glory, especially when it gets difficult? Let's go to another passage, Romans chapter 8. Oh, there's so much here, 18 through 25. I'm just going to read this chunk. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the re revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit 
Groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Uh, So much there. So much there. Paul's talking about in this passage, right, this present age, this between glory, grace and glory. He's saying this is where we're in right now, the sufferings of the present time, the hardships of this present time. All of creation is groaning under the weight of the fall and the brokenness and the curse. And it's just waiting for that day, the appearing of our Lord, where all will be made new. And all of creation will be remade. And the sons of God, the children of God, will be fully revealed in all of their glory. Our present age troubles, brothers and sisters, our sufferings, hardships, as bad as they may seem to us right now, will not compare with this future glory. Will not compare. What does grace train us to see? It trains us to see that the bad is not as bad as the good is going to be good on that day. Oh, that we would live with that hope. Oh, we would live in this reality. Our resurrection life is not outwardly visible right now. We don't have that yet. Our bodies break down. Our bodies are subject to the same brokenness this world is under, to decay, to rot. We will physically die if the Lord tarries. But that day, right, we will have the redemption of our bodies. The redemption of our bodies. We will experience all that we right now hope for. All that our salvation promised. And grace teaches us to wait patiently for it. It teaches us to patiently endure. It teaches us to persevere even when the cost is great. It teaches us to remain steadfast because this is sure. This is assured for us. And so we're going to go through this present age, brothers and sisters, where the suffering is promised, the hardship is promised, the pain is promised, but it's not the end of the story. The bad is not as bad as the good is going to be good. Beloved, the fleeting pleasures of this present world pale in comparison to the exceeding preciousness of the perfection of the world to come. Everything that Christ offers to us by grace and this future glory is better than anything here. It's better than it. The allure of the immediate and visible pleasures of sin, though difficult to resist, when we, what, what grace ends up doing for us is it teaches us that by faith to continually recognize that Christ is better. That a grace that has appeared is far better and far more pleasing and pleasurable. Glory, this future glory will be the fulfillment and realization of what you and I have now by faith. Do you believe it? Lastly. Lastly. I say lastly, but it's not really lastly. (laughs) 
It, it, it is. It is. Paul brings this, <clears throat> this full circle to the appearing of grace. He's told us what grace teaches us. To renounce ungodliness, right, and, and to say yes to godliness. It teaches us to wait patiently on the future. Glory, that's our blessed hope. But now he tells us it's how it is that grace teaches us. How grace teaches us. The best way to motivate the people of God to a life of godliness is, is not by emphasizing the good works that they have to do for God. Because if this passage wasn't here, that's all we'd be left with, isn't it? Verses 1 through 10. Tell the older men. Tell the old ladies. I'm sorry, the older women. Tell the younger women. Tell the young guys. Tell the bond servants. And we're left with this crushing weight of things that we have to not do or do. Well, that's not much of a motivation, isn't it? How many of you rail when you get the list from your boss of the things you've got to do? Do, 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 do. Right? We're not motivated by the things that we have to do. So the best way to motivate God's people to a life of godliness is not by emphasizing what they have to do for God. The best way to motivate them is by emphasizing the good work God has done for them. 14 of this appearing of the glory of the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He writes here, who gave himself for us to redeem us? That's what he's writing there. What's he saying? This is what the person of Christ has done for you, and this is how this grace now teaches you. Gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness or ungodliness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Paul knows that living the godly life in the present age will prove to be costly to believers. So what could possibly ignite the heart of believers with sufficient zeal and fervor and devotion to live like our Lord and follow our Lord in the trouble of this present age. Well, here's how he does it. Puts forth now this beautiful picture of what he has done for us to spark our love and affection for the grace of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. He reminds them of what God has done for them in Christ. This is why we need to know the gospel, brothers and sisters. This is why we need to rehearse it, meditate on it, day by day, look at it, remind ourselves of it, preach it to ourselves, speak it over ourselves. We're not supposed to de declare and decree finances and money. You know, you can decree and declare who you are as a child of God because of what Jesus Christ has done for you. You need that constant reminder. I need that constant reminder. And that's what Paul puts before him here. And look what he gives us just two things here, and there's so many more. But he writes here, he gave himself for us. Oh, that statement is so amazing. It, it speaks of, of the unparalleled love of Christ, of our God for us. He gave himself for us. Galatians 2.20 
Paul writes, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. How could you not live for the one who loves you in this manner? We live for our spouse this way, or we should. Because we love our spouse, we serve our spouse, we would give ourselves for our spouse. We would lay down our life for our family, or we we should want to. Christ, how did he love us? He gave himself for us. Willingly, sacrificially, to rescue us, to redeem us. This was a love like no other love. A love that brought him into the messiness and filthiness of our world to rescue us what god would do that who would do that rescue us from the filth of our sin that was sweeping us to to an eternity of damnation and judgment that we rightly deserve but what does he do he takes on humanity he clothes himself with this the frailty of human flesh pull us out of our filth. And He embraces us in our filth. And He cleanses us of our filth. And then what does He do? He puts on us His white royal robe of righteousness. That's what we're clothed in now. He gave Himself for us. That is the love of Christ for you and I, brothers and sisters. You don't have to earn His love. You don't have to win over his love and affection. You already have it. You already have it. He's already given himself for us so we could say like John, we love him because he first loved us. That's our response to this love. That's it. We know this already. God did not have to save us, did he? He didn't have to save anyone. Christ did not have to be subjected to the, humil- the, 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 the humbling life here on earth and the humility, the hum- that, that how he was laid low on the cross and all that he went through. He didn't have to experience being tempted by sin like we are. He certainly didn't have to stretch out his arms to be nailed to a cross and bleed out for our salvation. But once he determined to save, he gave himself for us. Now, we give ourselves to others, but we do it kind of half-heartedly at times. We hold back. He didn't. He didn't. And Paul says, look at this. Look what grace did for you. He gave himself for us. But then he writes, Christ also redeemed us. That word redeeming is, this is the language of releasing slaves from captivity. He writes, he redeemed us from all lawlessness, all ungodliness. The very things that grace teaches us to renounce, he's saying, he rescued us from that. He liberated us from that. We've been ransomed by, uh, captivity, uh, from our captivity to sin by the blood of Christ. 
knowing that on the cross he bore our guilt, paying the penalty for our sins, becoming the object of the fury of God's wrath, so that we could be made righteous and our sins would be forgiven. We've been purchased by his blood. We're not our own. We belong to him. And he writes here that we've been set apart. We have been set apart as his very own. This is what Paul's motivating with here. Look. Yes, living a life of godliness is hard. Living for Jesus is hard. Nowhere in the scripture does it say following Jesus is going to be a cakewalk. Nowhere does Scripture say, hey, come to Jesus and your life's going to be awesome. (laughs) Cupcakes, unicorns, balloons, party. No, trials, hardships, tribulations, difficulties, challenges, opposition, hatred, hostility. Please sign that decision card now for Jesus. It's costly, but he goes... Here's why it's worth it, man. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people of his own possession. You are Christ's, brothers and sisters. You are Christ's. You are his treasured possession you are his very own people and nothing can undo that nothing can undo that so what excuse do you have this is what he holds up for us this is the engine the fuel for this life of godliness he's telling us to live here and that we've been summoned to right we're his We're his, and because of this new identity, we'll be eager, he says here, zealous to do good works, to do what is right. But we know it's, we we do right because of our new status. Who we are leads to what we do. We don't reverse that. Our behavior matches who we are in him, and we, we do that. We'll want to do that. It's not an obligation. It's our delight. Christ gave himself first to redeem us from all lawlessness so that we can now say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. And Christ gave himself first to purify for himself a people for his own possession so that we can now say yes to living self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. You want motivation for a godly life? There it is. The grace that trains us that teaches us and the grace shown to us in how Christ gave himself for us and purchased us at the cost of his own blood. And in your day-to-day struggles and challenges with living a godly life, don't forget the teachings of grace. Don't forget them. Live each day knowing that the bad is not as bad as the good is going to be good. Our future glory is all worth it. And I pray that you would find Christ exceedingly precious and that the grace of God and the glory of God would motivate you to godliness and good works. In Jesus' name.